welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to this week's sponsor, Podcorn. Podcorn's a marketplace for podcasters and advertisers. It's super simple to use. Everybody knows I'm not super technical and I can do it. I know you can too. What happens is you just follow the prompts on their website and advertisers end up coming to you. Getting paid is even easier. As soon as the episode posts, the money is deposited in your bank account. It couldn't be any simpler. If you have a podcast, give Podcorn a try. You won't regret it. All right, guys, on to the episode. I'm going to have to ask you to jump back into the Wayback Machine with me today. We're going back to 1995, and this is a tough case, and there's going to be some graphic moments here, so you have to be advised. I know I say that on the majority of my podcast, but it's true on this one as well. Today, we're going to be covering the story of Janet Downing from July 1995. Janet was a beautiful 42-year-old healthcare worker. She was divorced with four children, and among them were Aaron Downing, Ryan Downing, and Kerry Ann Downing. And I apologize, there appears to be another male sibling. I just couldn't find a name for him, and I looked for it. I just couldn't find it. So she had four children. I believe she was divorced by 1995. Her and her kids lived in the Prospect Hill section of Somerville, which is a working class neighborhood, but there's a lot of people with house pride there. It's a beautiful neighborhood. Homes are well kept. At that time, had been in families for generations. And when I tell you, everybody knew everybody. It was like an open house. Neighborhood kids would come storming through. And it was that type of neighborhood, one where most people would want to live and raise children. And that's what the Downings were doing. And so were their neighbors, the O'Briens. And there was a whole host of neighbors within this neighborhood who kind of did that. They would, you know, use each other's garden hose, knock on the door. They'd think nothing of stopping in. Financially, it wasn't a super well-to-do area, but it was nice. People worked. It was a working-class area, working-class section of Somerville, which is a town that is adjacent to Boston and is actually connected to Cambridge, Massachusetts. So it's sort of just on the other side of the river of Boston. Edward O'Brien and his family lived directly across the street from the Downings. And Ryan Downing and Eddie O'Brien were best friends. And I mean, like, joined at the hip best friends. They were both 15 years old. Eddie was kind of unique. He was six foot four, 260 pounds by age 14, 15. Ryan was more of a normal sized kid, but they got along well. And both of them were into sports. They were in and out of each other's house all the time, almost like extended family. And that's how the whole neighborhood was from what I can gather. So I'm going to bring you to the day of this epic tragedy. Maybe that isn't even the word catastrophe, really. 
July 23rd, 1995. It was a Sunday. It was blazingly hot, as only a New England summer can be. Ryan Downing and Eddie O'Brien had decided they wanted to go swimming at the local public pool. And they were doing that. They were walking to Ryan's house, and they see Janet come back with groceries. So naturally, they all unload groceries, bring it into the Downing household. And while they're in there, Eddie notices that the door lock is broken. I don't know if this is to the front door or the back door, but the locking mechanism was broken. And when they were talking about it, Ryan showed him how to defeat the system. You had to flip the deadbolt lock, but there was a way around that. And that would come into play later. But after they unload the groceries in the Downing household, Janet Downing tells Ryan that she's going to take a nap. And Eddie asks, why is your mom taking a nap at this hour? And, you know, Ryan doesn't know. He's 15. He's ready to go swimming. So he's trying to get out the door. And Eddie O'Brien now begs off going swimming. Ryan goes off on his own, I believe, to the pool or just somewhere else. I really don't know. But Eddie goes on home, supposedly. So the two kids go about their business separately. I believe Ryan does go to the swimming pool, and he'd return home about 10 p.m. And I believe Janet did lay down for a nap. Where Eddie went, I don't know. But Ryan's life and the rest of the Downing family was about to change forever. Ryan Downing returns home about 10 p.m., and he's greeted by a horror show. His mother is sprawled out. Blood is everywhere. I believe Janet Downing was found in the dining room, but there was blood all over the place on family portraits, furniture, everywhere. It was uh, quite a horror show. Ryan sees this, runs next door to his neighbor's house, the O'Briens, and he asks Mr. O'Brien, the dad, to call the police. He runs over trying to help Janet, but as soon as he sees her, he knows there's no helping her, so he runs back home to call the police. And at about this same time, Eddie O'Brien is walking towards a convenience store where he worked. And when he arrives at the convenience store, the manager or the worker that was there noticed that Eddie had a large gash on his hand and it was bleeding profusely. He had also had scratches and scuffs all over him. It looked like he had been in a fight. Eddie O'Brien tells his boss or this manager that he had been jumped by two guys on the way walking to the store. And it's kind of strange because he would have had to have passed the police station at one point. I believe the police station on this route would have been between a quarter mile and half mile. He could have went right there. But he didn't. He went to the store and Eddie wasn't going to call the police. He was just going to bandage the wound and go on about his day. But the manager made him. He made him call the police. And the police show up there and he tells this story that he was jumped, you know, a short distance away. And this is a very well-traveled thoroughfare. So there would have likely have been witnesses. So there's no cell phones or anything. It's 1995 for the most part. Nobody had called in. Nobody had mentioned some kid getting jumped, you know, right near the police station. So the police start to become suspicious because by this point, it's all hands on deck. 
at the Downing household. And when Eddie gives his address, alarm bells go off to these patrolmen, knowing that there's a murder, a knife murder right across the street. And Ed's got a gash and scratches all over him. So now they start putting two and two together. And Ed is asked to come to the police station, and he does so. On the way to the police station, the police stop at the location where Eddie said he had just been jumped. And keep in mind that he has quite a wound on his hand, bleeding profusely. There was no blood. There was no scuffle marks. There was nothing indicating a robbery or a beating had taken place there. So they proceed to the police station and... At this time, Eddie's a juvenile, so they I believe they call the parents and all this, but it's just such chaos on the street. I don't know how long it took the parents to get there because Eddie O'Brien's dad was involved with the police. You know, he had to give a statement and all that because of this horrific murder. And when I say horrific murder, the details will come, but man, it's a tough one. So brace yourselves. So the alarm bells are going off with Eddie's story. There's a knife murder across the street from his residence. He's intimately familiar with the victim. And all of a sudden he shows up claiming he's been jumped with what appears to be a knife wound to his hand and covered in scratches. So now the Massachusetts State Police and the Somerville Police Department have dual investigations going. They're trying to investigate Eddie's claim of being jumped by two people. I believe he said one of the assailants was African-American and one was Hispanic. And the state police and Somerville police were also investigating this grisly homicide that occurred directly across the street from Eddie's house. So I believe the hair on these detectives' neck must have been standing up at this point. The timeline on what I'm about to tell you next is kind of hazy from the reports in the media, but what happens next is Eddie is confronted with the fact that his fingerprint is found in Janet's blood, in the house, and he's covered in scratches. Later, it would be determined that Eddie's DNA was at the house. His blood was all over the place. It was on a post in the basement. It was on the front door. So now Eddie is confronted with this information, and he changes his story. And he says, yes, I was at the Downing household, and when I walked in, there was somebody killing Janet Downing. And he had a mask on and this guy told him to run and to keep his mouth shut. So at that point, Eddie does that and starts heading towards the convenience store. Doesn't call the police. It's the story is just so juvenile. It's ridiculous. So he continues with this story that he had been jumped by the African-American and Hispanic guy before he got to the convenience store. And, you know, he would have had to have passed the police station or he could have ran to the police station right as this attack was happening. So things start unraveling pretty quickly for Eddie O'Brien. So when Eddie's fingerprints were found in blood, in Janet's blood at the crime scene, and later his DNA would be found. This was 1995, so don't forget DNA was in its infancy. But his blood was found at the crime scene later blood from Janet would be found on his pants. So it's not looking really good for Eddie O'Brien at this point, and he's arrested pretty quickly. I think he would have been arrested just for having his fingerprints at the crime scene. 
but to come up with this crazy injury and scratches and all this on the same day, around the same time as Janet Dowling's murder, the police hit the jackpot. This looks like an easy solve. So the case hits the media, and boy, does it hit the media with a vengeance. It would be on the headlines in every 6 and 11 o'clock news for two years, maybe more. The case just took on a life of its own, and it's just neighbor against neighbor. I guess that was the attraction here, and this kid was 15 years old, and the fact that he was six foot four and 240 pounds or whatever, you know, just lent more fuel to this media firestorm. You couldn't get away from this case in New England. It was everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. I remember what it was like yesterday. I can't believe it was so very long ago. But, man, this, this was a tough case to take, and I remember it pretty well. But I want to tell you exactly what the prosecution said happened, and I want to tell you about their case. Prosecutors alleged that Eddie O'Brien was obsessed with Janet Downing. And the reason they believe this is... Previous to the murder, Eddie O'Brien told his best friend Ryan that he could see his mother undressing, and he used a telescope to watch her undress in her bedroom. The police later found this telescope in Eddie's room. Ryan was irate and told him to stop doing that nonsense. And just prior to leaving the Downing household, Ryan had later testified that he had talked to Eddie about the lock, and he believed Eddie was playing with it and left the lock open. So when Ryan left to go swimming and Eddie purportedly went home, he believes he came back and through that door with the malfunctioning lock. The Commonwealth alleged that Eddie returned sometime later and entered the house. Something happened between Janet and Eddie, I don't know if he was just doing this voyeurism that he had started previously, but whatever happened, Eddie took out a knife he had and brutalized her. He brutalized Janet Downing so bad she was stabbed and slashed 98 times. She was stabbed in the head, neck, torso, all over. It was one of the bloodiest crime scenes the Somerville police had ever seen. Janet fought wildly for her life. The crime scene stretched from the dining room to the stairs to the doorway, and Janet almost made it to the doorway, but she passed away before she could exit. Janet also had a broken rib. She was stabbed with such force and a punctured lung. One of the experts that testified in this case described whomever her killer was as a psychosexual sadist. The killer took the time to open Downing's blouse and make small incisions in her bra. So this is something that took quite some time. He carved semicircular cuts in her chest, although he avoided her breasts. And the expert had theorized he didn't want to destroy what he had always wanted to see. There were 22 horizontal slices on the side of her neck, which were made carefully, which also took time. The expert went on to say there was similar markings on the other side of her neck, and he believed that this was a trial run at decapitation, if you can believe that. The knife used in this attack broke off at the hilt, which prosecutors believed that's when Eddie's hand came down and struck the blade, causing the gash to his hand. 
the hilt of the knife was found in the trash at the Downing household. Prosecutors theorize Eddie conducted this homicidal rage attack against Janet and then went somewhere to wash his clothes. A witness would later testify that they did see Eddie around this time anyway, at a garden hose washing himself off. But the police and prosecutors do theorize that he changed his clothes at one point, but he didn't get enough of the blood off him because forensically the case just started sliding against Eddie very quickly. Janet's blood was found on his pants. His blood in DNA was found in multiple places at the house. And the defense seemed to focus on the slipshod crime scene analysis. But when the EMTs and the police arrived at Janet's household, she was still warm. This had still happened. They needed to rush it to the hospital. In retrospect, maybe death should have been declared there, but EMTs are lifesavers, right? So everybody they get, they're trained, get them to the hospital as soon as possible. And the hospital in this case was five minutes away. So if she was going to be saved, they did have a chance. So complaining about a crime scene error in this is just kind of silly. All crime scenes are chaos. Any cop will tell you that. You just have to sift through what the EMTs did, what the killer did, and what the police touched. So the deck was basically stacked against Eddie. He had changed his story. He comes up with forensic material all over the crime scene. His hand is gashed. He's got scratches all over him. So forensically, this case for the defense was a nightmare, and ultimately they wouldn't be able to overcome it. There were also three witnesses, three other kids that testified in this case. There were numerous witnesses, but these kids provided testimony stating that they went to call for Ryan. They didn't know he was at the swimming pool. They went to call for Ryan to see if he would go out to play. And while they're knocking on the door, they see Eddie O'Brien hiding in the bushes. He sees them, kind of smiles, waves. It's kind of a weird interaction. And Eddie walks back towards his own house. So he's placed right at the crime scene, hiding, just strange. The whole story Eddie tells, combined with the forensic evidence, it points to guilt to about a moral certainty, right? I mean, he's there. His fingerprints are in blood. I'm sure his fingerprints were all over the house, but the ones in blood means he was there when Janet was bleeding. The gash on his hand means when the hilt broke his hand slid down the blade. His DNA means he was there committing this homicide. And then this foolish story he tells about being jumped. The cops investigate the scene. There's no signs of a struggle. There would have been blood. Eddie was bleeding like a sieve. He had scratches all over him. And then when Eddie was presented with the fact that his thumbprint was found downstairs in the basement of the home, in her blood, in Janet's blood, he changes his story to say, yeah, I was there and somebody else was killing her. So almost like a juvenile fantasy story this kid comes up with. And his defense team is kind of forced to take that route as well. Eddie was represented by a great attorney by the name of Robert George. He had handled several other high-profile cases and he'd gotten some acquittals. He was an excellent attorney, a bulldog, really. 
But the only avenue I believe that the attorney had to follow was what Eddie had laid out. Forensically, this was difficult to beat. And I think Robert George knew that. So a lot of this testimony focused on Eddie's character. He was an altar boy. His grandfather was chief of police of Somerville. He'd never do this type of thing. But I don't think character testimony gets over, in at least in a jury's mind, on forensic evidence. How did your hand get cut? Why is your DNA at the scene if you didn't do it? Why is your her thumbprint in blood at the crime scene? It was virtually impossible. So they tried to combine a defense of Eddie's character and faulty forensic testing, and it just didn't work. As the trial was ongoing, Eddie now, I think, was 16 or 17, but Prospect Hill was kind of at war over this. The O'Briens staunchly stood behind their son despite the physical evidence, and the Downings were irate that this kid was getting portrayed as an altar boy and all this other stuff. So... I believe the neighborhood quickly took sides, and I believe the majority of them sided with the Downings, but the whole neighborhood was destroyed. It was a sense of peace that was lost. These were homes that left their doors open. They knew everybody. Everybody was in and out. It was a typical American working-class neighborhood, you know, boys on bikes, girls in the yard, and it was totally destroyed by this case. Eddie was ultimately convicted. There was some court drama in the case, though, whether to try Eddie as an adult or a juvenile. In Massachusetts at the time, you had to prove extreme atrocity to charge a juvenile with first-degree murder, and this fit the bill. But there was two hearings on it over, I don't know, six months, a year. In the first hearing, as to try Eddie as an adult, the defense prevailed. But Tom Riley, the DA at the time, appealed to the Supreme Court, and ultimately, Eddie was charged as an adult in this case. As you can imagine, when the verdict was read, there was pandemonium in the court. The O'Briens stated that they loved Eddie and they were with him, and the dad had to be removed from the court, stating that he was going to win on appeal and all this, and the Downings were just devastated as they were, but they were very strong. They held together very well and they were articulate in their defense of their mother. So that was something to see at the time. Eddie did get an appeal. I believe in Massachusetts, every first degree homicide conviction, you're almost guaranteed an appeal. That didn't go well. The forensic evidence was just too much. And I believe by that time it had actually increased with the DNA testing and all that. So Eddie's still in prison. He's gonna serve the rest of his life in prison hopefully. But there is something I need to tell you about. If you remember the episode with Colleen Ritzer, who was also murdered by a juvenile, Chisholm was his name. I hate to even say that kid's name. Evil as the day is long. But a decision came down from the Massachusetts Supreme Court in 2012 or 2013, which followed on the heels of a federal Supreme Court ruling that stated juveniles convicted of first-degree murder cannot receive a life sentence without the possibility of parole. They say it's cruel and unusual punishment. I say what Eddie O'Brien did in the Downing's home was cruel and unusual punishment to Janet, but that's just me. 
So he is eligible for parole, and he was just recently up. I believe it was 2014, and the Downing family has to fight against this again, and they will have to fight against it, against him getting parole. I don't think he will, and I think people see how crazy Eddie O'Brien is. Another reason I don't think Eddie will get parole is that he's never admitted to this. And I don't know if he will when he comes up for parole again, when he finally admits. But most defendants don't get parole the first time out anyway. And I don't know if Eddie plans on admitting to this horrible murder, but I don't think he's ever getting out. I just don't. But I'm not sure. This is Massachusetts, so nothing is impossible, especially on the defendant side. So I was reluctant to mention the fact that there was a book written about this case. And typically when books are written about cases I cover, I read them, but I couldn't do it in this case. This book is called The Politics of Murder. And it just seems to be complete and utter nonsense. The book was written by a guardian at Lightham, a lawyer that worked with Eddie during the trial, I guess, not a criminal attorney. So I don't know how they explain away the fact that Eddie's DNA was found at the scene, that his fingerprints were found in Janet's blood, that Janet's blood was found on Eddie, that Eddie had a gash on his hand, that Eddie was all scratched up on the same day within the same few hours that Janet Downing was murdered. How do you get away from that? Well, they point the finger at a brother-in-law I'm not going to mention his name because I think he's got nothing to do with this case, that Janet had asked her sister and brother-in-law to move out of the house just prior to the murder because the brother-in-law was allegedly selling drugs from the basement, from the home, something like that. So the basis of this book, as best I can gather, is that they didn't do an investigation that encompassed this new suspect. And it's such a stretch. I mean, how do you get away from this physical evidence? You don't. That guy is innocent. And to name him like that was a sin. So read the book if you want. I'm going to give it a hard pass. From what I can gather, the Downing kids did pretty well after the murder, as much as you can be expected. And I see them online fighting against this foolishness in the courts. And I also saw some postings by them. They were fighting a local Somerville newspaper who was printing stories that Eddie O'Brien had done in prison. It's completely unimaginable, but the demographic in Somerville has completely changed from 1995 to now. It's definitely a different town and not in all good ways either. I believe this was a case that the police deserve some kudos on. They tracked this down pretty quickly and did an excellent job. And then it went on to Tom Riley as a prosecutor, and he handled this case very well. And I believe the book called Politics of Murder focused on Tom Riley. Seems like they may have been an ax to grind here with Riley. And he handled the case himself. And the author of that book inferred that that was to further his career. Tom Riley did run for governor sometime later, but I don't know. Maybe the book is politically motivated, but I'm going to leave it there. I want to thank you for joining me today. If you need to get a hold of me, feel free to email me at barry at bostonconfidential.net. I'd love to hear from you. 
Thanksgiving just passed. I hope everybody had a good one, and we're going to be working towards Christmas soon. So get in the spirit. I know with the COVID shutdowns, it's not great, but we have to do what we can. Let's stick together. All right, guys. I'm out. I'll talk to you later.